0: So just a, a little bit of background, since um, I know not everybody out there is familiar with me. Um, you guys who are familiar, familiar with me, I'll try to make this quick. <laughs> I realized today that uh, it, it, it'll be 35 years ago this year, this fall, that I moved to Center for Spiritual Awareness, uh, just a mile away from where I am now. Um, I live a mile away from there. And I moved there 35 years ago at the um, invitation of Roy Davis and lived and worked there for two years, uh, doing a rather intense, uh, meditation schedule plus work there. To make a long story short, uh, one day got the idea to go for a tour of a local a hospital facility here, uh, just, uh, 15 miles away in a, in a local town. And it was a treatment center. Drug and Alcohol Addiction Treatment Center, I went for a visit and met the medical director, the psychiatric director, and I resonated with them and asked them if they would like me to come in as a volunteer and teach meditation to the patients there in the hospital. They said yes, and I talked to, to Roy about it, and Roy said, absolutely, that would be a very good thing to do for a ministry. So I started to teach meditation in the hospital, and this was in uh, 1983. So this was this was when meditation was, you know, just sort of getting a little bit of traction, but uh, by and large, it was relatively unknown, particularly in treatment centers. So anyway, I started doing that, uh, and and started to see uh, great results with the people who were coming to the meditation classes, and the medical director in the hospital was very impressed, and he asked me if I would design. A larger program that would run alongside their treatment program, and um, again, I talked to Roy about that, um, and he encouraged me and uh, gave me some advice and told me some other things I could look into. Um, and what I what I what eventually happened was, med- you know, we were using this meditation model, and I should also say that this facility used uh, the 12 steps of addiction treatment so one of the steps in the 12 steps is through prayer and meditation i will achieve conscious contact with my higher power so i felt like meditation fit right in with the 12-step program but i also realized that i needed to bring more scientific credibility and validity to the uh to the meditation model up until then there was sporadic research here and there nothing too uh, profound at that point although the transcendental meditation uh, organization uh, run by maharishi mahashoyogi he uh, he was he was really innovative he had a lot of physicians working for him and he immediately started to do different types of research on on meditation and what happens physiologically with the meditation process so i was fascinated by that And I realized very soon uh, while I was working there at the hospital that um, we could use techniques like biofeedback to speed up the process that a meditator's physiology goes through in terms of relaxation and de-stressing. But I also realized, too, that the key to the meditation process, uh, at least what the transcendental meditation folks had found, was the brain. Um, that the most remarkable changes that seemed to occur with meditators were measurable in the brain. So back then, there was something, a type of biofeedback just emerging, uh, very new, called brainwave biofeedback. So it was a method to put um, sensors on the scalp that would measure the brain waves, the EEG, and then use that uh, information as feedback that you could give to the person in order to direct them uh, to deeper states of consciousness or um, there's many 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 things you can do by using uh, by directing the brain to certain areas and certain frequencies but in particular I was most interested in this the meditation model what happens in the meditator's brain over time and what what really is the basis um, in terms of of this electrical activity that we can measure. So what is the basis for higher states of consciousness? And that really became my mission. But along the way, uh, what what started to happen uh, as I was treating uh, people in the hospital, and I also had a private practice, was that there are various problems like you know, physical problems, mental problems, emotional problems, everything from irritable bowel syndrome to chronic migraine headaches to a post-traumatic stress disorder to anxiety and depression and addiction, of course. These things started to remediate and clear up, as they will do with meditation over time. But what we were finding was by pinpointing uh, certain areas of the brain and really Uh, reinforcing very specific brain changes that you could see an effect occur, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally. Um, And I I realized that that was the process that uh, meditators go through as well, Um, particularly, you know, meditators who really stick with the program. Many of us see all kinds of problems uh, clear up as we go through the process. So after several years of that, um, I'm, I moved around uh, the country, ended up in Santa Barbara, California, opened up an institute out there, and began to work more and more with people uh, who were interested in the meditation model. You know, how do, we, how do we facilitate the changes that occur in the meditator's brain? I'm sure all of you are, are aware now, if you keep up with the research, it, it's quite clear and, um, I should say here too, that I think one of the most profound things I, I've ever heard was a Yogananda quote that was actually, um, recorded and played in the documentary movie Awake, uh, the, the documentary movie about Yogananda. And it's just a 45 second, uh, segment where, uh, Yogananda says, um, the brain, and the spine is the altar of God. And I, I, I'd, I'd heard that uh, from Roy Davis and I'd heard, and I'd read that, but I began to realize that that is a profound statement and, and quite literal that when we begin to understand the brain and the spine and what's actually happening, yes, they're physical, they're physical structures. But what Paramahansa Yogananda was pointing out, it is where this, this pure consciousness enters in and is processed and conditioned and then distributed throughout the body and becomes us. So the brain and the spine held this sort of mysterious, uh, or, or in, in effect is sort of this mysterious filter that takes this pure consciousness and then modifies it, restructures it, and it becomes us. It becomes our behaviors. Our thoughts, um, our attitudes, um, our likes, our dislikes, and so on. What gets in the way of that pure consciousness and the manifestation of it, God realization, self realization, God realization, is all of the stuff that is, that gets programmed into the brain and nervous system that lies in between, you know, if you, if you read an autobiography of a yogi, Paramahansa Yogananda says that the brainstem, the medulla, is where this this life force, this pure consciousness, enters the body, and then from there is distributed to the rest of the brain and the body. So, in between this life force entrance, also known as the mouth of God in Sanskrit, and um, how it's manifested, is the brain—trillions and trillions of brain cells and neural pathways that are Conditioned, as I said, by many things, our environment, um, how we're raised, what we've been exposed to, what we learn, and of course, our karma. So, part of my mission, I know I'm making a long story out of something very short. Uh, my mission, my, myself and my wife, who is also a neuroscientist, has been to use this information to facilitate this clearing up, which, of course, is the whole point of meditation and Kriya Yoga. But this clearing up, this unveiling, so that we, we can move the individual from, from the identification with all of the stuff, the modifications, the mental modifications, the memories, and so on. So we can move the individual from the identification with that to the identification with the source. Hence, completing uh, Yogananda's statement, the mind and the brain are the altar of God. So um, we we moved back here to North Georgia and sort of did, we've created this full circle. We're coming back to the meditation model, coming back to um, using our knowledge or information, what we know about the brain, the nervous system, combining that with the uh, sacred teachings. Kriya Yoga, of course, is, is our tradition. And showing how we can finally merge science and spirituality. Not finally, I mean, Einstein predicted this too, that sooner or later these things were going to merge. And sure enough, when we look around us now, we see that that is happening. It's accelerating quite rapidly. Obviously, too, we're also in a very challenging time period right now. The the way that our individual nervous systems respond to this kind of situation that we're in right now um, needs to be really understood, uh, and we as yogis really have the tools available to us to uh, to create more resilience and to to really keep the body from going into some of the stress mechanisms possible with this this pandemic that's happening. Um, I felt it only appropriate to speak a little bit on this. Uh, Today, because it's so prevalent (laughs) around us. So the problem is with this kind of a um, collective threat, the problem is that our, our brains still have some very primitive structures in them that are constantly scanning for threats in the environment. And then when appropriate, or sometimes even when inappropriate, these areas of the brain get triggered. And of course, when they are triggered, they begin to, they begin to sort of I'll use the word trigger again. They trigger a cascade of neurochemicals and neurohormones in the body that ultimately lead to things that we don't want them to lead to. Lowered immunity, heightened stress response, activation of sympathetic nervous system and so on it's only appropriate given the, the the threat but um we know better we know that that's not a good thing and there are three responses that get triggered and i'm sure most of you have heard of the fight or flight response so so when there's this kind of a threat the body's first reaction is is to fight or to run away you know it wants to take some kind of action the neurohormones neurochemicals are dumped into the into the bloodstream and the rest of the body, so that the body can prepare. But there is another response that goes along with the fight or flight response, which um, is problematic, and that is the freeze response. We can interpret freeze as feeling uh, the the actual feeling of uh, helpless and hopeless. You know, I've talked to a lot of people uh done quite a a few interviews now past few weeks and this is uh this is quite challenging because there are some people who are in situations and circumstances that that hopelessness and helplessness becomes sort of a, a a daily a fight they they have to go through trying to maintain a sense of inner peace inner balance and contentment but when i'm asked you know what is the the most important thing that we can do my answer is always meditation because meditation is an opportunity you know for however long we sit whether it's 20 minutes 30 minutes an hour meditation especially when we do it correctly tells the body and remember there's parts of the body that are really freaking out but when we meditate we tell the body that everything's okay Everything's okay. And the more we meditate and the more advanced we get with meditation, the more we start to tap into superconscious states and feelings of peace and inner inner peace and so on and so forth. And these are profoundly cleansing to the body and have a remedial effect, um, lowering the, the stress chemicals, the neurochemicals and neurohormones, as well as boosting the immunity. And I'm sure most of you heard of the uh, the phrase neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity refers to the fact uh, that the brain is, is this plastic organ and is basically modified by our thoughts and our intentions. So yes, negative thoughts, um, depressive thoughts, uh, and so on do modify the brain but at the same time, positive thoughts, uh, thoughts of contentment. Um, there were studies done on Buddhist practitioners of compassion meditation and showed that the parts of their brain associated with the emotion of compassion were quite, quite bigger uh, than the, the average or the normal person. So meditation gives us the opportunity to, to really let the body know that everything is okay we really have to remind the body of that, given given the situation we're in, and um, at the same time we have to be wary. There's a, a one of the yamas and niyamas is a brahmacharya, which essentially means sort of the conservation of, of vital force of energy. So we 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 really uh, we need our vital force. We need our prana. We need our prana to be strong. Um, as we face, you know, weeks, months, if not years, of um, of potential threat in the environment. So we need to have strong prana. But that means that we have to learn how to cultivate our vital force. And um, I just want to speak briefly on that. Uh, there is a couple of things. First of all, we have to start realizing when we're losing vital force, when we're wasting energy, when we are um, getting negative or getting too wrapped up in situations, circumstances, or the media that we really don't have any control of at the moment. So so this vital force can be wasted or leaked um, and very important to pay attention to where, if that's happening, where that's happening. Roy Davis was very adamant about this. Don't get too involved in superficial conversation. Don't get too involved in philosophizing. Uh, Be self-contained with your energy. Don't get get into challenging other people's um, concepts or thoughts or beliefs. These are all ways to conserve our energies. But the other, there's another part to this, uh, which I find quite interesting, and it's that we can build our vital force. And that's, that's done by being conscious of the world around us and taking in beauty, uh, impressions. They're like food for us. The most obvious source of positive impressions is nature. Um, it's why we feel so good when we see a sunset. It's why we feel so good when we see a sunrise. It's why we feel so good when we see a beautiful flower. You know, sometimes we don't know exactly what it is, we're just, oh, we get in all of these things. Well, that's food that it's not literal food, but that is food for you. That is food for your energy, for your vitality, of great works of art, writings by enlightened people, sacred scriptures, poetry, music. All of these things give us energy. They reinforce our vital force. Then obviously, uh, the food, every piece of food. Um, if you're familiar with Ayurveda, um, if you're not, I encourage you to, to study it because that give, and in fact, the Vedas, Ayurveda, the, the knowledge of the Vedas, um, is paramount to this particular time period because there's, there's so much information there that shows us how to realign ourselves if we're out of alignment with nature. And that realignment will will only increase our vitality. So um, I think stopping the the wasting of energy, learning how to build our energy, and then nourishing ourselves uh, with things like Ayurveda um, uh, and the appropriate uh, diet for our particular body type I think is very important. So, you know, there's there's lots more, obviously, that I could say about that. I do want to say one thing about the little technique that um, we ended the meditation with. That's called the inner smile. Um, I learned that many, many years ago, maybe 20 years ago. It is essentially a technique from Qigong. Many of you are familiar with Qigong. Kathleen Reeling, uh, one of the CSA ministers, is a teacher of Qigong um Steve Ridley Roy always encouraged us to look into uh tai chi chi gun because it it seemed to enhance our meditation and kriya yoga practice but the inner smile uh, again i'm going to mention something that Roy was very um heard him many many times over the 35 years i knew him say just be happy just smile and his last uh telephone recorded message he used to do a weekly um telephone message you could call in and listen to the last one i think ron linda mentioned this was pretty much just that be happy that is your real nature uh that is your inner nature to just be happy well the inner smile is sort of an exercise in that that contentment so the body responds to, to our intention to every thought we think every motion that we have and by sort of directing that to the brain the internal organs um, again this is a qigong technique many thousands of years old Um, there is a response within a cellular response to that attitude where blockages stagnant energy prana is allowed to circulate when we do these techniques so i encourage you to try these things uh, during your meditations Um, the inner smile is a great one to do if you wake up in the middle of the night and can't fall asleep and you'll usually find that after just a few minutes or sometimes a few seconds that there's a shift that occurs and the next thing you know, it's morning time. So anyway, I just thought I would put that in. So, um, I wanted to open the the floor now to any questions and, uh, I'm, I'm happy to answer whatever I can. If I can't answer it, I will tell you. But uh, anybody have any questions for me, please. um. This is uh, Barbara Dockert. Okay. Um, I do have a question about the inner smile. I read the part in your book where you said there is a video on the inner
1: smile on your website. And it went on your website, and it was wonderful. I listened to everything and looked at everything you've got on it. But I couldn't put my hands on that video. So can you guide
0: it's a, it's a, it's an audio.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. Um, but you know, there, as I said, there's many versions of this. If you go to Google and do inner smile, you'll see there's gotta be dozens of people teaching this now. Um, now we do have the audio on our new website, uh, which I probably should have mentioned. We do have a new website because of this new, um, institute we're developing now that has a more spiritual emphasis and spiritual approach the new website is ipi which stands for infinite potential institute ipi.global so if you go there you'll you'll see um uh you'll find the inner smile i believe it's under media and we, we just started that website and we're starting to load it with more and more information. There'll be podcasts and more science blogs and, um, other, other information as time goes on. Uh, so, um, anyway, the inner smile is, is simple to, to learn. Once you've learned it and you sort of get the mechanism down, it's easy. <laughs> I, I see somebody asked a question. Is there a consumer level EEG available on the market? um so let me just say something about that real quickly Pascal. there is a um there's a couple of portable eeg devices eeg stands for electroencephalography they measure the brain and they're used for feedback so there's there's uh the, the main one uh, which you've probably seen advertisements for it because it's everywhere it's called the MUS, muse m u s e and it's i've been investigating that one for over a year now it's pretty decent. It's not bad. It's a simple head, headband, and then an app on the phone, very easy to use. My only problem with it is it's a one size fits all protocol. You know, there's literally thousands of things, actually 6,000 different parameters in the brain that you can train. Well, the Muse just uses some very basic simple parameters because it's, it's meant for the general public. So it's not a clinical device, but for, for what it costs and its simplicity, um, I've, 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 I know people who have been very, very satisfied with it. It helps meditation. And, uh, there's actually a piece of software for clinicians that goes with the muse, um, where a clinician can go in and modify the protocols that are already preset in the muse, but the clinician can modify and individualize those protocols. And that is also quite effective. We have a number of our clients using that now for meditation purposes, and, um, you know, sort of attention focus, concentration, even PTSD. So if you're interested, the the one I would recommend uh, is the Muse, okay? Okay. Marty, I had a question about your book, The Brain
1: Sutras, Mm -hmm. um, which I've read and really, really enjoyed. Um, One thing I found particularly helpful was the chapter about getting, I think it was called Getting Into the Gap. I wondered if you could maybe touch on that a little bit.
0: Sure. Um, Getting Into the Gap is um, an interesting possibility or potential that we really have available to us. The way I explain it is there is a gap in our, in our thought process. And in that chapter, I, I sort of show how the gap in, a, in some of our thinking can be associated with the gap between nerve cells in the brain, neurons. There's a, there's a place where there's a gap where um, a dendrite uh, and an axon meet. And, the, and within that gap what is determined is where what direction those particular electric that particular electrical activity that's running down the axon to the dendrite it's within that gap that either an activation or inhibition is going to occur mm-hmm. an activation means a a charging up uh, a, a stimulus or an inhibition or a quieting down so how would we translate that well if we pay attention to the gaps between our thoughts, we really have a choice where they go. There is a, a very, uh, fraction of a second, a little time frame, where if we pay attention to those, those little gaps between the thoughts, that instead of them going automatically and jumping to a usual, uh, train of, of negative thinking, if that happens to be the problem, We can interrupt that by really paying attention to what is happening in those gaps. Often the gaps are associated with breath. Um, I've heard meditation teachers say, pay attention to the gap between the inhalation and the exhalation and the gap between exhalation and inhalation, because that also gives us a little uh, segue into into changing what's happening in that particular moment. So, so the, uh, getting into the gap is really about that practice. Paying attention to the direction that the thoughts are going in and then finding that point where we can interrupt them and direct them intentionally to where we want them to go. Um, again, the inner smile, uh, what uh, Mr. Davis used to say, just be happy, these are all attempts at changing the gap. You know, changing the direction of, of the thought processes, interrupting them, and stopping negative
1: flow. Marty, I have a question for you as well, Leonard Teemer. Uh huh. No, how are you doing today? Good. A great talk, by the way, as usual. Thank you. Um, mm-hmm. How how much or how many studies uh, have you uh, observed as it relates to healing the body during meditation
0: with uh, proficient meditators? Um, there's, there's quite a few out there. I think the studies aren't necessarily about healing, although you could call it healing as they are about lowering blood pressure, improving, uh, um, you know, particular problems like migraine headaches, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, even, uh, autoimmune disorders. So it's not, I honestly, I'm, I'm sort of searching in the back of my mind here for studies that actually say, oh, this person started meditating for this specific healing and this happened. They're more in terms of, um, you know, you meditate and then you see all these other problems uh, go away. So I think that, that um, uh, you know, if you want to email me, uh, my wife has access uh, through the universities to all kinds of research, uh, particularly on meditation. So we can see, if we can, we can find something for you. But why don't, why don't you shoot me an email and I'll see what I can find, or Stella will. Okay, thank you. I see a question from uh, Lee Marsh. Um, Lee mentions that in some of Yogananda's writings, he mentioned that focusing the eyes upward instead of horizontal, whether closed or not, kept the brain from dif- drifting, daydreaming versus keeping the eyes horizontal or low. Have there been any studies into this? Yes, there are some old studies that show, that when, especially when you close your eyes and you lift your gaze up, there's a huge burst of alpha rhythm in the back of the brain, which is a very healing rhythm. we uh, will get into the whole uh, description of what alpha is and what alpha does. So, yes, Lee, there is actually research. If you look up a uh, clinician, uh, one of the uh, pri- pioneers in the field, Barbara Brown, she uh, uh, cites that, um, that, Particular study of where the eyes.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. Hey, Marty, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, yes. First of all, thank you so much for all your, your your work. You and your wife has done throughout the years and helping and healing people. You know, thank you so much for that. And I have make a confession: haven't bought your book yet, but I am going to buy it. <laughs> this is, there's a few typos in it that. Slipped past us,
0: but um, I'm going through it now and and fixing it. Plus a few, uh, there's a few typos. Let me just put it that way.
1: (laughs) Okay, okay. I I just, I just had uh, uh, two questions. I was wondering, um, uh, people who who've been through a lot of trauma. I mean, you know, violence and different things like that. Because sometimes in my meditation classes here on the East Side, I have people who've been through some some violent things. And, and, you know, they have those, what they call those blind spots where mm-hmm. certain things would just trigger them and yeah. they would they think of different things happening. So what would, as far as, you know, meditation and, and I, and, and I love that smile, uh, Tigong, mm-hmm. I'm gonna definitely going to use that. Uh, could you just give some, like some key points on that as far as maybe, uh, uh, I, I can use as far as helping people like that or, or things that you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, if, if, if a person has severe trauma, repressed trauma, hmm. meditation isn't always the best place to start as you're seeing. Okay. Um, techniques that involve the body more, Tai Chi, Qigong, um, that involve movement and breath tend to be better. You know, I've, I've worked with prison populations, just, um, studies on pause now, but I kicked off a study, which you probably heard about in California, okay. the is And they, some of these guys just can't meditate because as soon as they close their eyes and they, you know, they start quieting. Well, everything that's been held back jumps out and that that's what you're seeing. Okay. So, um, you, preliminary things to that, as I just said, are things like Qigong Tai Chi, the inner smile, um, things that use the body, um uh and and sort of more moving meditations seem to be better at that stage of the game okay
1: okay wonderful and and, and also um did this swami rama when he first came over did not he do some uh show some yoga techniques back during the 70s that they some clinic yeah he, he went to the,
0: he went to the meninger foundation uh, Dale Walters, who was a colleague of mine, and Elmer Green, there at the Menninger Clinic. This was in Topeka, Kansas. They moved to Wichita. Mm-hmm. So they did a lot of studies on him. Uh, but his the main technique that he used was Yoga Nidra. And Swami Rama could basically uh, um, go into whatever brain state they asked him to. He could stop his heart. He could make He could make the temperature... Uh, on either side of his palm, very about 17 degrees Fahrenheit. So he was controlling blood flow. Roy knew him and once told me he could also make perfume exude from the palms of his hands. But yeah, he was he he had spent a, you know years and years in the Himalayas. His um he went to his guru when he was five or six years old, I believe. His parents said okay. And uh, he's, he studied in, in Hardwar, Rishikesh, and spent a year in a cave uh, blindfolded. And, you know, of course, when you do that, a lot of the yogi powers known as Siddhi's soul, soul abilities do unfold. So, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate you. Anybody else?